Morning. What a uh, great looking group of kids up here, huh? It's awesome. I was telling a couple of them, reminded me, you know, so many. I said, in 2001, I said, none of you guys were born probably, or they weren't, of course, teenagers. I went on a trip to El Salvador, and I was um, the first planes that were allowed to release after 9-11, like let's say 9-11 was on a Tuesday, the thing was on a, maybe it was Friday. Um, I was on a plane with some people going to do a mission trip in El Salvador because they had had this horrible earthquake, overwhelmed by the 9-11 news. But anyway, um, it was a beautiful experience. So I'm thinking, you know, wishing I was going with these students uh, to El Salvador. Keep them in your prayers. So today is, we are, as that uh, video introduced, uh, New communities. Our last message in this series will be right back in Acts next week, but we break up the book of Acts in different themes, and next week is a new series called The New Mission. This is called The New Community. But we're going to kind of even get there this morning, so last message in part two. We will be, next week, the message series will be, as I said, will be the, the last, not all the chapters, but let's say uh, chapter 15, very important chapter, all the way through chapter 20, and it'll lead us all the way up to Easter. Hard to believe we're talking about Easter already, but that's where we're headed. But this morning we're in Acts chapter 14. You have a copy of the Bible. You can uh, open it up, turn it on. We'll get there in a minute. But in Acts 14, just to set up this message, the church, the new budding, new geography, new leaders, they're in uh, what we call Asia Minor. Today would be Turkey, but really into Europe. That's their base now. They're not even in uh, Israel anymore, as we have said. But they launched their first official mission. There's been a lot of mission going on all the way since Acts chapter 2. But now it's official, right? The church is established. The Acts 13, we're not going to go there this morning, but they have this sort of commissioning moment. They're launching the church, and they're doing it on purpose, laying on hands on these uh, leaders, and off they go to launch their first official mission into Gentile territory. Again, you've heard me use that word, was Gentile, non-Jewish people. But I would say this, for Paul and Barnabas, as a quick setup to this meeting, they're the people that are leading this, this particular mission in Acts chapter 14. It is the wild, wild, wild West for them. What do I mean by that? For two, you know, good Jewish boys and now good Jewish men who grew up in a culture that had of all different, you know, some people were Christians and some weren't, of course, in the early days, but all of them were from a Jewish background. All of them had a framework they could work with. Even if they said, no, Jesus isn't the Messiah, they knew who Abraham was, they knew who Isaac was, they knew who Jacob was, they knew who David was. They had a context to work with. But now here, especially in the passage we're going to look here, this is an unusual passage. You are in the wild, wild, wild west. And I think, I'm going to hopefully get there in a few minutes, I'm not so sure we don't live in our own day in the wild, wild, wild west relative to people's understanding about God. But think about this. Those of you who are raising teenagers, okay? I don't know if you had this experience. And your teenager comes home, and your teenager says, says, this is what we studied in uh, you know, social studies today. This is what we studied in math today. This is what we talked about on recess. And you say to yourself, you look at your husband or your wife and go, something's changed since we went to high school, right? You have this moment like, what in the world is going on? This doesn't seem like the same thing I went to that high school too. And we weren't talking about those things. Well, multiply that times 100 and you would feel how Paul and Barnabas feel in the passage we're going to look at here this morning. Now, let me quick thing I want to introduce you to a person. I'll read a little bit from him in a minute, in a few minutes. 
there was a guy, one of the most influential thinkers, writers, theologians in the last century, the 20th century, is a name, some of you, most of you wouldn't know him, some of you would. A guy named, a British guy named James Newbegin, often known by his middle name, Leslie Newbegin. And he was someone that was a missionary for 40 years. Him and his wife in the late late 1940s, they decide to become missionaries and they leave uh, uh, Britain in the 1940s and they're gone virtually for 40 years. And then when they come back, in the mid-1970s or so, they come back. He does, he becomes a writer. He lives for another 25 years. And where he's most known, really, as this great thinker and writer and missiologist, because of the writing he did. A couple books, the last book he wrote in the late mid-1990s, just before he died, was a, a book called The Gospel in a pluralist, we'll get to that word in a minute, society. And he made a discovery. He's most well known for this particular discovery and his writings tease it out. In the years that he left uh, Britain, he realized because of a number of things that happened in just 40 years, right? A growing secularism, if you know what that means, a growing secularism, middle of the 20th century in in a culture not too different from ours. He said, the secularism has grown. I I came back to Britain in the 1970s. There was a weakened church. The church was a lot weaker than it was before I left. There was also, because of a lower birth rate, true in America as well, there was people were having a lot more kids in the 1940s and a lot less kids in the 1970s and 1980s. There was a lot of migration that came in from all different countries. He came back. And it was the, 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 even the demography of his towns looked different. London looked a lot different. And because of these things, he said, listen, basically what I came back to 40 years later was what he called a post, you've heard this term, Christian society. Sometimes you've got to go away to come back. And those of us who never leave, you know, this place or that place, you don't see the differences as much. And he comes back to his friends and he comes back, he becomes a... a, 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 a um, sort of scholar in residence, and he says, listen, guys, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the, the, the country I left, when I le- uh, when I, 40 years ago. Things have changed. And when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, which is our business, followers of Jesus, this is a post-Christian society. But this is what he meant by that term. It's different than what some of us mean by it. He didn't come back and say, I live in a secular society where nobody believes in God anymore very fashionable. Secular society, people don't believe in God anymore. They're, they're all sort of fashionable atheists or agnostics. That's what people say in our culture today. I just don't believe. But he said, that's not, that's what people would say. But I didn't come back to a secular society that didn't believe in God. I came back to a pagan society when people believed in false gods. It's a different thing. And he said, particularly if you read his writings, He said, in this modern scientific culture, okay, in the 1970s and 80s, we're still there, in both Britain and America, people had come to uncritically believe. Think about this. Your friends, my friends, the people you were. They had come to uncritically, even Christians were were saying, were nodding their heads, to what he said was this objective knowledge that was unaffected by faith. They said, this sort of fashionable, you know, secularism, this fashionable objective knowledge, we have reached the place through modern scientific thinking that it's not that we're anti-God, but we don't need God anymore. And we're just comfortable. This is objective knowledge. We're, We're not knocking anybody. And we believe that you don't need to believe in God. He said, that was what they were saying. A secular culture that doesn't believe in God. But he said, you look a little bit below the surface, that wasn't the case. It was a pagan culture. 
and people did have gods. They had false gods. And what he was saying to his culture, the point of my message this morning is, it required, if the people wanted to be genuine Christians in their day, okay, not that long ago, the end of the 20th century in Britain and in America, it required some new thinking on how to share your faith and how to talk about your faith. And if you didn't wake up and have some new thinking about how to share your faith and talk about your faith, you aren't going to get anything done in the people that you live near and work with. You're gonna, we're going to go right past. So that's the point of my message this morning, Acts 14. The title of this message is called The First Gospel. Because I think Paul and Barnabas find themselves in the Wild West. You and I find ourselves, in a manner of speaking, in the Wild West. And they are going to reach people and realize that these people that they're talking to is the first time they've ever heard anything about the gospel. And when that's the case, you've got to find a new strategy to reach them. Okay? Acts 14, 4, 8 through 18. Follow along as I read these words. Middle of the first missionary journey in the book of Acts. In Lystra. Really, in, right in the center of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, but heading in the direction of Western Europe, Greece, Hungary, etc. There was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Apostle Paul. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. We don't know what that means, insight. And called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Okay, a miracle happened. People got, his, got people's attention. Now it gets interesting. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, which I assume Paul and Barnabas didn't know, you know, the gods have come down to us in human form. Hmm. Bet Paul never had a response to a sermon quite like this one. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, the Greek pantheon. Many of you would remember this from I don't know, 11th grade. The Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes. Or if you have a different copy of an older version of the Bible, it might say Jupiter and Mercury, okay, Latin names. They called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, so they had a temple of Zeus. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices. Can you imagine? To Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles heard of this, probably through translation, like what the heck's the big ruckus, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, what are you doing this for? We too are only human, just like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in the past. He's trying to think, how do I talk to people who've got no background, right? In the past, somewhere, he let all nations go uh, their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. What an interesting uh, sermon. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. The first gospel, okay? The first gospel. Now, let me say a few quick things about this. It's the first time that, any, that they were, had ever, these two men anyway, were preaching to people who had no background. 
Now, if you, even if you went to the beginning of this chapter, which we didn't, because he goes on a number of city tours, and, and this is what they do every time, including Acts chapter 14, verse 1. I skipped it because I wanted to get to this focused area here. But he, he goes to this other town called Iconium, and they do what they've been doing. Every town they go to, they realize they're in more and more sort of unusual foreign territory, but they go to the synagogue. Makes sense, because they want to go and start with people that have some relationship. Because when I go to the synagogues, even though I'm still reaching people who don't know Christ, I can say, remember Abraham? Remember Isaac? Remember Jacob? Remember David? Dot, 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 son of David? Jesus. I have somewhere to go. But in this town, they don't go to the synagogue. In Leicester, there was a man, they're, they're just walking around, they're out there talking, because there isn't a synagogue. And the reason towns that didn't have synagogues didn't have synagogues is, if you know your history here, is you had to have at least a dozen people to, who are all Jews that came to the town council and said, here's our certificate, there's 12 of us, we want to start a synagogue. And if you didn't have at least 12 people, you couldn't form a synagogue. So it tells you that in towns like this, there were very few people, less than 12, who knew anything about the Old Testament, okay? There was no synagogue, and the people here were, it's obvious through this passage, polytheists. Well, you know what that means? It means many gods. We see that. They were polytheists, and that's who Paul's, but they were also, back to um, Newbegin's book, a pluralist society. Now, let me take just a minute because it'll be worth it, I hope, to talk about this word pluralism. We have two ideas in the world today, in our culture today, then and now. We call it cultural pluralism and religious pluralism. Let me talk about cultural pluralism and uh, uh, religious pluralism. What is cultural pluralism? Cultural pluralism, say that 10 times real fast, cultural pluralism is basically many cultures within one. We have that in America. People would celebrate that in America all the way back to the melting pot ideas of the 18th and 19th centuries. That is, people from, this, from all kinds of cultures, and they're all within one culture, but what we have in cultural pluralism, we have the music and the art and the literature and the clothes and the ideas, and we bring them together in one culture, and we have a richer culture because of a cultural pluralism. We celebrate it. I celebrate it. I love it. I, I think our church is getting better. The, the more uh, a cultural diversity we can have in this church, the better. You know, background, where you came from, what country you came from, your skin color. The, you see how the Bible ends this way. Cultural pluralism is a very good thing. We're richer. Now, religious pluralism is a different thing. They get conflated. Religious pluralism is belief. People bring different beliefs, different religions, right? And they say that all these perspectives, you know, we have our own different religion, but we're all headed towards the same God. You've heard that. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm Muslim, I'm Christian, I'm Jewish, I'm Shinto, I'm whatever. We all, we all, we all believe in a different God, but we're all, we express our faith in a different way. We worship differently, but we're all headed to the same God. This is religious pluralism. But because of that strange explanation, which you've heard before, then, then when you talk about religion, you can't talk about true and false, right? You can't say this religion is true and that religion is false. Cultural pluralism means that your faith is a private matter. And if it's private, it's also relative. It's relative to you. It's, it's your truth. 
It's what's true for you, and this is what's true for me. And when we talk about religion, we don't talk about true and false. We talk about what's, what's true for me and what's true for you. This is religious pluralism. Rob, why did you just spend five minutes in a sermon talking about it? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is the world that we live in today. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to know how to share your faith at all. You're going to be talking past people. I am and you are. This is the dominant place that we are today. And religious pluralism is, 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 is anti-scripture, right? The Bible says there's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. That's not a point of arrogance. I say that gently and, and, and carefully. I say that if I say that, I go an extra mile with people if I do that because I care about them. Because although my testimony is private to me and, and my faith is personal in that sense, my truth is not private. I believe this is the truth for all people. Are you with me? So this is, this is the dilemma that Paul and Barnabas have. I think it's our dilemma. Three quick things in the time I have left. Number one, what does he do? What can we do? You gotta start speaking. That's it. In Leicester, there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth. He'd never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. He's not in a synagogue. He's not in a church. Certainly there's no churches. There's no even synagogues. He's outside wherever he is. He's at the watering hole. He's at the marketplace. And he's speaking. What's he saying? The content's not given right there in that paragraph. But what we do get here, <laughs> there's no Jesus. There's no death on the cross. There's no risen the third day. We don't get there yet. There's no Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they wouldn't know what he's talking about. But you got to start speaking. My guess is... If I had to guess from other places in the book of Acts, Paul's going to talk about his own life. He's going to say like he did in, in Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 22. Say, this is what happened to me. I'm riding, going here, and, I, and that's, this light comes from heaven. And he starts talking. And I think there's a creator. And he puts joy in your heart right here in verse 18. So you got to start speaking. We were in my small group this past week. My small group's doing Sermon Align Guides. Some of you are doing that in this Acts series. And the question was asked by the person leading the group. Uh, maybe it was on the guide and said, um, does anybody here, do they come, anyone here in our group come to faith from someone outside of their a family member? You know, someone that you didn't know prior to you become. And this one couple raised their hand and said, yes, we did. And they told this fascinating story about they both, this was 25 years ago, young married couple at the time. They, they um, were, both worked at the same hotel husband and wife. And while they were working there, they might have had one little child at the time. There was this guy, they mentioned his name, and he, he said, they both got to know him and he was kind of a character and they got to know him over the course of this year. And finally one day he says, you know, to them both, something's really, I got something I want to share with you. Will you come over to my house? And they said, fine. You know, they even, I said, did he tell you what? And they said, no, we had no idea what he wanted to share with us. So they come over his house and um, he sat down, they had something to eat, and he said, listen, basically in so many words, he said, listen, um, I've met God, and it's really changed my life. And I said, wow. Did, what did they, they said he never said he was a Christian. He never said anything about church, but he talked about um, the love of God. He talked about the sacrifice of Jesus, and he said, it's changed my life, and he shared some things about that. And then they said, we started to ask him questions. And he said, listen, I'm not gonna answer any of your questions. I'm gonna give you a Bible, and I'm going to tell you where to answer those questions. And I will answer those questions, but not until you do your homework. And they laughed about that. And, and the, the woman of this couple, Michelle, said, you know me, I'm, I have so many questions. And he always kept telling me, I'm not going to answer your questions until you do your homework. Now, they never went to church with that guy. But they, and I don't think they became believers that night in that house. But something happened. 
something was planted in their lives. And not long after that, months after that, they began to think, they began to look, they began to do their homework, and they ended up saying, we're going to decide to go to church. They found a church here in Rochester, they started going to that church in Rochester, and they became followers of Jesus Christ. What's the point? You and I, in this pluralistic society that we live in, you will be the first gospel and the first Bible to many people in your life. People that live on your street, people that work in your office, people that go to your high school, you will be the first Bible. My question is, what are you doing about it? Are you buying the lie that you know, nobody wants to hear what you have to say, that it's my truth versus your truth, or do you and I have enough courage to just start speaking? That's what Paul did here, and that's what you and I need to do if we're serious about reaching people who are far from God. Second thing, they, took the, they, they challenged the false gods, okay? They challenged the false gods, but it's so interesting here. This is so, I mean, I think if Paul submitted this as his resume to go to the seminary I went to, they wouldn't take him because this is such an unusual sermon. This is what he says. We are only human like you, and we are bringing you good news. I circled that in my text. That's the same word used in many other places in the Gospels and in Acts. It's the Greek word euangelion. You've heard that fancy word, which means gospel. Okay, telling you what? That Jesus died on the third day and rose again? Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. He never says anything. What is the good news in this passage? It's about escaping from the futility of giving the best of your lives to worthless things. That's where he starts. Paul's smart enough. Paul understands this much about culture. He was an educated guy. We know this from other places in the Bible. He knew who Zeus was. He knew who Hermes was. He knew who the Greek pantheon was. He, he had a category, at least, for the Greek pantheon. He said, listen, let me tell you something. I love you. I care about you. I'm glad you have your attention. What I want to tell you is these things are not going to take you. They're not what you think they are. They're worthless things. Okay? And, it's the, 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 and really what he's saying is it's a false God. And, and, and the false God that you're listening to is not going to, verse 18, fill your heart with joy. The false God that you're following is going to fill your heart with fear. And you know, why, you know why they come in verse 18 to sacrifice to them? This is so important to this message. Why do they come out and they can barely stop them from sacrificing bulls, bringing to sacrifice to palm bar. Now, when you first read that, you go, they're just happy because this guy got healed. And they're thinking, hey, let's sacrifice to the gods. But there's a story. This is a true story. You can look it up on your own out of, after this sermon. They had an excavation in the 19th century, 1885, I think, in this part of Turkey, was called Lystra, and they found all kinds of um, inscriptions and pottery, and there was a temple there, the same one here in, in the verse that we just read, a temple of Zeus. And they found it, and, they, and, the, and on this inscription, it talked about Hermes, and it talked about um, Zeus coming there. And there was a legend attached to these inscriptions. You can find, might even be in your Bible study notes, but it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, you can find this in other sources, that Zeus and Hermes apparently had come to this town prior to the time that Paul and Barnabas were there, and they had come in a disguise, this is sort of the, mytho the mythology, and they came and they were knocking on doors, kind of disguised, and no one wanted to let them in. So finally this one couple lets them in, they're named Bacchus and Philemon, this couple in this story, and they let them in, and they have wine, and then finally these two, you know, modest people uh, sort of take off their cloaks or whatever, and they say, we're Zeus and Hermes, we're God and we visited you. 
And these people are blown away. And they said, listen, here's what's going to happen. Because you let us in, we're going to start a temple here, the same temple supposedly that was there. We're going to start a temple here. You're going to be the priest. But tomorrow, everyone else in this town is going to be wiped out. And you're the only two that are going to live because you let us in. And so what the thinking is, is here, that was the legend of this town. Why are they sacrificing to them? Because their idea of God was one of fear. They said, listen, whoever God is, when he comes, you better do what he says. You better sacrifice to him because this is a God of fear that needs to be placated. The gods are angry and the gods are angry and if we don't satisfy what they want from us, we're in deep trouble. Now, I don't think there's people in Penfield and Pittsford and Rochester. I doubt there's anybody in our town that seriously believe in the Greek pantheon. I think those days are over. But are there people in this town, maybe even churches, maybe even in this one, who if you said, who is God, they'd say, he's angry. He, the reason I don't go to church, Rob, thanks for the invite, but I got enough people pointing their finger at me. And, and uh, the things I hear from people about who God is and, and even the God of the scriptures, he's angry, he wants a pound of flesh, and I'm not interested. And let me tell you something, that's a false God. That's not the God of the scriptures at all. And Paul was willing to challenge the, uh, uh, the narrative, are you? What does he do? Very quickly. Number one, when I say challenge the false gods, you gotta start by saying they're worthless. That takes courage. Well, I don't wanna, I don't, you know, uh, my truth is my truth, their, your truth is your truth. You gotta get past that. What people are believing, even if it's all dressed up in some sophisticated objective knowledge, as Newbegin would say, that, you know, I'm a fancy atheist, I'm a, fa I'm a fancy agnostic, and I don't need religion, but it's, I'm glad it's good for you. That's a false God. And you and I need to have the courage to say, listen, I want to see if that really holds water in your life. You need to turn from that false God because it's not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. It'll never give you hope. It'll never give you peace. It'll never give you what you're really looking for because all of us were made in the image of God, and we have a, a need to be connected with God. We have to, and second, not only is it worthless, you need to turn away from it. That's a kind of pre-repentance repentance. You gotta turn away from these false gods, okay? We have to have the courage to do that, and then you need to turn to the living God. Now, what's interesting about this passage? I mean, if you just take this passage, of course, we don't have it all. No one in this passage becomes a Christian, there's not even any kind of invitation here. How can you become a Christian without Jesus and the resurrection? So nobody becomes a Christian, but the words of Paul, the deeds of Paul, the first paragraph, and the challenge of Paul, right? Calling them out against the worthless gods that are not serving their purpose, and then pointing them to the living God, even though he doesn't give them all the information. Listen, you got the wrong idea about God. He's not angry. The gods are not angry. He knows you. He loves you. And next week, if you come back, we'll talk a little bit about Jesus, okay? Do you have the courage to do that? Do I have the courage? Leslie Newbegin, in his book, you know, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Listen very carefully to these words. This is a challenge for us. If I suggest that I possess the truth in a way that I have nothing more to learn, I am rightly condemned. So what he's saying is, listen, some people say, well, I'd share my faith more, but, you know, I don't want to come off as arrogant. I don't want to come off as a know-it-all. I don't want to come off and say, you know, you need to believe what I believe, okay? That's not the approach that you and I should take. If I'm that kind of person, I have nothing more to learn, take it or leave it, then I am rightly condemned because that's not what Jesus did, that's not what Paul did, that's not what you and I should do. 
The curiosity, which is always seeking to discover more, is one of the necessary conditions of life. It's true for Christians and non christians Get curious. But seeking is only seeking, is only, excuse me, serious if the seeker is following some clue and is willing to commit himself or herself to following that clue. That's what my friends Tom and Michelle did. They didn't get it all in that one dinner party, but they got serious. Merely wandering around in a clueless twilight is not seeking. The relativism which is not willing to speak about the truth, but only about what is true for me, listen carefully, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary society. It is a preliminary symptom of death. Listen very carefully. What I would say is this. It's not only a loss of nerve in some of my friends and your friends, and maybe at the Super Bowl party tonight or wherever we, you know, our highways and byways, who, who, are, who have a loss of nerve of really being, thinking hard about life and truth. Listen, it's a loss of nerve. This is what Newbigin's saying. To you, Christian people, you have a loss of nerve. You too, even though you're Christian, you've come to believe the same objective knowledge baloney that's been going around this culture. You're believing it, not because you really believe that this is a God. You don't believe in that false God, but you believe in it such that you're lacking your own nerve to share your faith. You're lacking your own nerve to start speaking. You're lacking any kind of nerve to challenge the false gods that are out there. And you think you're doing it because you're being sophisticated and you're being gentle and you're being respectful, but really you're being a coward. That's what Newbigin's saying, okay? We need to challenge the false gods once we know what they are. Not because we're a know-it-all, not because we're better than other people, not because we have a corner on the market, but because we humbly and winsomely love people and we believe this isn't private truth. My testimony is unique to me, but this is a truth that they need. People are really living and really dying and really going to hell. Do you believe that? If you do, you gotta start speaking. Number two, you need to be willing to challenge the false gods, okay? They're out there. And they have all kinds of sophisticated clothes and airs, but people are believing in something. Don't, don't buy that they're not. And lastly, we need to begin with God's love. This is so interesting to me. In the past, he let all nations, I'm reading verse 16, go their own way. He's saying, I don't know how I'm going to talk to these people because I can't, give, I can't point directions to the Old Testament. i, I got to start somewhere, okay, to this group. In the past, you know, in, in four, three words, he talks about, you know, everything. He let all nations go their own way. Yet he's not left himself without testimony, colon. Now I'm thinking after the colon, he's going to say, Jesus came, Jesus died, rose the third day, right? That's his testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons, he can see this, and he provides you with plenty of food, nobody's starving in this town, and he fills your heart with joy. He says, I'm gonna start with, here's what I'm gonna start with. I'm gonna start with what I know to be true. I'm gonna say, there's good things in your life. And whether those good things are your family, whether those good things are your career, whether those good things are your crops, whether those good things are the thing. He goes, I'm gonna start, there, and what I wanna say to you, ladies and gentlemen, is these worthless gods that got you hold, holding you 
with, with fear, holding you over to think that you need to satisfy them, live, keeping you in a box. That's not the true God. The true God knows you, even though you don't know him. He loves you, and everything good in your life comes from him. This is evangelism 101. Now, I got a text this week from my um, niece's husband. I did their wedding this last summer. And he said to me, cute, he says, Uncle Rob, right? Can I, I can call you that now, right? Because his wife is my niece. He goes, um, now that you're my uncle, can I ask you a Bible question? I said, sure. He goes, well, here's my question. He said, uh, you know, I have, uh, I know a few things, and, 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 and this is a question about uh, my wife and myself. And he said, um, you know, I know the Bible says there's no marriage in heaven. Matthew 22, he didn't say that, but Matthew 22. And he said, um, so I've just been reading about that, and, and I read di different articles, I had different points of view that I've read, I'm really interested, but some people say that there's no recognition in heaven, that I'm gonna get to heaven, and if there's no recognition in heaven, and, and, and people aren't married in heaven, I'm gonna go to heaven, I'm not, even gonna, I'm not gonna recognize my wife, and he goes, that just makes me extremely sad. Like, I don't even want to go to heaven, <laughs> right? Now, isn't that beautiful? So he says, what do you think? So, happy Valentine's Day. Right? <laughs> isn't that a great thing? So I said to him, well, okay, here's what I said. Now, my, I, well, I have to confess this. The first thought I had was somewhat unsanctified. And the first thought I had is, only a guy that's been married six months would even ask that question. <laughs> but... I repented of that, <laughs> and I said, that's really a beautiful question. And I said to him, first of all, I don't want to go into all my whole answer, I said, um, there is recognition in heaven. I gave him some verses, you know. The disciples recognized Jesus. Jesus recognized the disciples. The Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, that's Moses and Elijah. They've been dead a thousand years. There's recognition, and I gave him some verses for that. But I said, really, your question is about heaven whether it's marriage in heaven or my dog in heaven, whatever it is, it's about heaven. And so the Bible doesn't say a lot about heaven. Why? Not because God's trying to hold back, but because heaven is a, is a different dimension of reality. The Bible says, the eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart and mind of mankind the things that God has prepared for them that love him. That's saying, listen, I'd love to tell you, but you don't have the language for me to tell you. So, you know, uh, is the Bible really have streets of gold? I'm not so, I don't think so. But he said, I've got to explain to people what heaven's like. Let me take something as crazy as paved roads that have potholes and say, they're going to be gold in heaven. Sound good? Okay. Because I have to speak to you in a language that has some sense to you because really heaven's a whole different dimension of reality. So I said this, will you know your wife? I think there's going to be recognition, number one. But here's what I really said to him. When you see your wife, you know, when you think about when you first met her, when you think about the end of the day, I'm going to see her when I get home, or I'm thinking about what it's going to be like for Christmas, or I'm thinking what we're going to do next year, and maybe that we're going to have kids. When, you, when, when that joy that comes into your heart, when you think about her, when you see her, that joy is given to you from God. That's what this verse says. And, and that joy you experience is your experience in a broken world, in a sinful world, in a world of all kinds of upside down and hurt and pain, all kinds of things. That have, even in this broken world, you're telling me you got so much joy in your heart you don't want to go to heaven. And the same God that gave you that joy 
it's only going to be better in the next life because uh, I think it's Revelation 22 or 21 I said to him, um, says this, in the new heavens and the new earth, this much I do know, God will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sadness, no more um, crying, no more pain. Yeah, come on, no more insistence. So I said, this much I know. In heaven, sadness is banished. So if it makes you sad to think you're not going to know your wife in heaven, I can tell you right now, you're not going to be sad. Okay? All right? You begin with God's love. Guys, this is what we're called to do. Get creative. But wake up and realize it. This is not your father's Oldsmobile anymore. This is, this, we live in a different world right here. Right here. Those of you who have kids know it better than those of us who don't have kids because your kids are coming home. Not only from school, even if they go to a great school, you homeschool, they still, they live in the world. You know, it's a different world. And we gotta learn how to talk to people. And we need, it's, we need to start speaking where you live, right? Uh, you know, I was blind, but now I see. You got a testimony, just talk about it. This guy said to, to my friends, Tom and Michelle, I want to have you over. He didn't say, I want to tell you something that you need to do. I want to tell you something that's happened in my life. I got a story to tell. When's the last time you told your winsome story about meeting Jesus to anybody? Right? And then begin, be willing when you find out what people really believe, to challenge them. Not because you're arrogant. Not because you're a, get over that lie and that myth and that, you know, you're sophisticated, I'm sophisticated. I don't do that because I don't want to be a, you know, a, a know-it-all. Get over yourself. You're not a know-it-all. You're coming humbly and saying, listen, I'm telling you this. If, if, if you knew someone had cancer and you had the cure, would you hold it back from them? Of course you wouldn't. You'd do whatever you could to get them that. You'd give them your kidney. You'd, you'd give them $50,000. This is bigger than that. Start speaking. Be, have the courage to challenge people's gods. They'll thank you for it and begin with God's love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. We love you. Thank you for um, just the privilege to, to be with you this morning, Lord, in worship. And Lord, I just pray for us, starting with me. I can be just as um, self-satisfied and, and disinterested as the next person, but help us all, Lord, to... Remember how much you've done for us. That the joy we have today, it's your gift. Everything we have is your gift. And help us, Lord, uh, to start speaking, Lord, to our friends, neighbors, family members who, who are not in a relationship with you, who are living not in some, you know, squeaky clean, objective uh, knowledge world. They're believing false gods, Help us to be honest about that and help us, Lord, to challenge them and to point them to the love of God, to a God that loves them. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.